Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. This is a recording that I do of a weekly Monday night Bible study every Monday night at 7.30 at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel. If you're interested in joining us live, please email me and let me know or just show up in person. We'd love to have you. But without further ado, enjoy this recording of a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening, this community, this opportunity to be in your word, this opportunity for you to encounter us and speak to us in wherever we are in our lives. So we pray, Lord, that we would just have a spirit of openness, that we would be present, to be able to pause in this moment and set aside all of the things from today, any worries or anxieties, stresses, doubts, fears, anything looming uh, over us that may be coming up or we may be wrestling with, that we would just lay those things at your feet, Lord, and that you would remove any distraction from uh, our minds so that we can fully enter into this time and be completely attentive to your voice. We pray, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon each one of us, guide us in our reading, our reflecting, our sharing, and especially, Lord, that you would prompt us with deeper openness, deeper faith to grow in deeper relationship with you. Bless us each in the ways we most need it, and those who could not join us tonight, and those who may still be on their way. And we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight we are in Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read the extended cut. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 23. You may hear part or all of this uh, gospel reading this Sunday, which is the third Sunday in ordinary time. So Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. So we have the beginning of Jesus's ministry in Galilee and his call of the first disciples. So first time through, I invite you to just listen to what is being said. Take a moment to um, just let these words wash over you. Put yourself in these different scenes and uh, try and see what pops out. Okay, so first time through Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, He withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what had been said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in the land, overshadowed by death, light has arisen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. He said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He walked along from there and saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He went around all of Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness among the people. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. We're going to read this a second time now. And I invite you to listen to the words or follow along with them as they are read. Listen to see if any particular word or phrase stands out to you, strikes you for whatever reason. And reflect on that. What might the Lord be saying to you through that? Why is it resonating with you? What does it remind you of? Uh, And begin your reflection there. How is Jesus speaking to you through this passage? So second and final time through Matthew 4, starting in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what had been said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, Light has arisen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea. They were fishermen. He said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. He walked along from there and saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. He went around all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and illness among the people. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to take some time. I invite you to reflect back over those passage, those words that were read, uh, Matthew 4, 12 to 23. See what stood out to you, and as well discuss any uh, questions that arose in this. We'll take about 10 minutes to do that at the tables. If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you. But those of us here, we'll do that together, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group. So as you've uh, reflected on, discussed this passage, what are some things that stood out to you? What are some questions that you have about it? Yes, Daniel. So uh, why didn't Zebedee go with sons? Why didn't Zebedee go? Yeah. Uh, well, it doesn't seem as he, that he was asked, <laughs> first of all. Um. Uh, but we can infer by the fact that he's named in this passage twice that he became someone notable in the early church. I mean, there's no reason Matthew would write his name if no one knew who Zebedee was at that time. Matthew's writing in, you know, the 60s, so 30 years after uh, Jesus' ministry. And so it's, it's very likely that uh, Zebedee became very involved in the ministry of the early church. Um, he's, he could also be mentioned, and it's very clear also just from the, the uh, context of this section and other parallel ones in the other Gospels, that he was very wealthy already because his, um, he has many boats. Uh, his, his sons leave. He has other servants who are able to help him. He has this kind of whole uh, conglomerate of uh, or maybe contracts other fishermen who work for him. So he's either, A, unwilling to go because he has such wealth, 
Uh, B, wasn't invited. Um, but C, probably needed to remain there for whatever Jesus had in store for him later because it's probably clear that he's mentioned so frequently that he had some kind of role in the early church as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to figure out why they just stopped everything and did it. Yep. And it, but were they, did Jesus have that look that you just couldn't mesmerize? Mm. Did, did the Holy Spirit, you know, inspire them? Why? Just yeah. Yeah. As you were saying that, I was—I had a flashback of freshman year of high school, and I was in my French class. And the girl who sat in front of me, her name was Kayla. She turned around one day and she said, "Matt, will you come watch me audition for the play?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'll do anything for you." <laughs> and I went, and I ended up having to audition, and I got into this play, and she didn't, and she never spoke to me again. <laughs> but as you were talking about that, like. That like tractor beam, I was, that's what I was imagining. I was imagining like me and Kayla freshman year of high school. But um, no, I, I don't, I, I mean, Jesus obviously had a very magnanimous, attractive personality. Something about him was very magnetic. But um, this has to do with the language of discipleship at the time of Jesus, okay? So what normally happened um, at the time of Jesus was, again, I've mentioned this before, I think, that all young boys and girls around the age of five, they would go to synagogue school. And they would learn the entire Torah. They would memorize it. First five books of the Bible, memorize it until they were about the age of 10. And then uh, the girls would go home and they would learn kind of the trade of the house, which they had been learning kind of along the way as they were growing up. And then the boys were, if they were really good students, uh, they got to go to the next level of schooling. If they weren't, they were sent home to go and start learning the family trade. Okay, and that first um, level of schooling was called Beit Sefer. And then the second level of schooling, Beit Talmud, they would continue learning the best of the best. And they would memorize the entire rest of the Old Testament scriptures and continue studying their rabbi's interpretation of the Torah, the first five books. Memorize all of this. 49 books of, is that right? No, 46 books of the Old Testament memorized, okay? Um, and that, that's how incredible uh, memorization and oral tradition was at that time. Uh, and so then about the age of the uh, coming, coming of age, the bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah age around 12 or 13, uh, the best of the best, again, those who weren't good enough would be sent home to learn their family trade. The best of the best would then go try and interview with different rabbis. And their goal was to convince this rabbi that I'm going to be exactly like you. I interpret the Torah exactly like you. And they would go and try and defend their uh, cause to be this rabbi's disciple. They would go seek him out. And if the rabbi saw that this student was a worthy disciple, they would say, come follow me or come after me. What Jesus does here, he doesn't wait for anyone to come to him. He goes to the reject pile. He goes to those who had been sent home to learn their family trade, fishermen. They weren't the best of the best. They went to synagogue school as kids, but they were, they were rejected at some point for not being good enough. And so he goes and he uses that language of a rabbi to say, I want you to be my disciple. I see something in you that I deem is good enough and worthy enough to be a disciple, to come follow me. And so all of your life before this, when you've heard that, no, you're not good enough, you're just going to be a fisherman, I'm telling you, no, you're going to use those skills as fishermen, and you're going to become fishers of men. Come follow me. And so if someone looks at you, and you've been told one thing about you your entire life that is very negative, and they say, I see something in you that's the opposite of that, and I want, I want to bring that out of you. Come follow me. It's no wonder to me, then, that they would drop their nets, because they've been waiting for someone to see that in them their whole life. That's what I think. Would, would yes. Have seen it that way? Who knows? You know. <laughs> yeah. 
um, you know, the, I've seen it depicted, like it's depicted in The Chosen, with much excitement. Like, all of the Jewish people were awaiting the Messiah. And so if your children got picked to be who you believe the Messiah to be, to be his disciples, I would hope as a faithful Jew, you'd be very excited. Um, Zebedee obviously had other people who could work for him. And so if there was any hesitation, it would have been A, why wasn't I chosen? Or B, just the separation of the sons and having to say goodbye to them so abruptly. Um, but in, in the culture at this time, things, we're, we're very, we, we draw things out in our modern world. Things back then, and even not too long ago, like imagine marriages. You remember all those old movies? Where like two people meet on a train and they're like, I wanna marry you. And like, you've known each other for like an hour, buddy. You know, but it was like that, right? It was like, that was just how it was. And at this time, it was the same thing. Like, you know, I, I'm imagining the stories in Genesis where Isaac meets Rebecca or, or Jacob encounters Rachel at the well. And it's like immediately, like, I know this is the woman that I want to marry. Just like that day. Just like, dude, this person could be a serial killer. Like, get to know her a little bit, you know? But that's our modern mentality. Then things were very like, when it was the right time, it was the right time and you acted. Life expectancies were shorter. Like, you know, life was very, it didn't have all of the luxuries and the comforts and all of the maybe modern excitements that we have today. And so when these key moments in your life happened, you had been trained in the art of being present to notice them uh, and kind of being raised by a tribe of people who all knew the same way of living. And when these things happened, you said yes, and everyone rallied to support you. That was kind of the culture at the time. And so I think it's very averse to us, like, this is, wow, like, drop everything, because we're so different in all the ways we're attached to our routine and to our way of life, and how this is very abrupt, and we don't like very abrupt, you know, we don't, we like to have change happen as slowly and painlessly as possible. But that wasn't the way then, and I think that's, it would have seemed very typical, I think, to someone reading this at the time, especially also knowing that rabbinical language of, like, I choose you, I see something in you. And I think people would have supported that. Family would have been like, yeah, this is it, you know. Parents had to say goodbye to their daughters like on a whim because she met some dude at a well. And it's just like, okay, like we've raised your whole life, but I guess bye, you know, see you later. You know, that's, I mean, it's just crazy, you know. I can't imagine that now, but that's, it was just so common then, you know. Yeah, Alan. Were they all, they're possibly chosen, but were they all Jewish or? It says here there's Gentiles. Are Gentiles they don't learn the Torah? I mean, yeah, Gentiles are the 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 word for anyone who's not Jewish. However, all of the twelve were Jewish. Yeah, they were all. They just weren't maybe the best of the best or the most scholarly um, or the most well educated. Some of them maybe were a little more educated, knew a little bit more, like the disciples who had followed John the Baptist, for instance, Andrew, maybe John uh, or Philip. Um, you know, kind of depends. You know, on on what um, historical or extra-biblical information you take or, or, or leave. But uh, we know, I believe, that all of them were Jewish. Um, the reason why uh, Galilee of the Gentiles is mentioned is because um, those in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, looked at the northern region of Galilee kind of with this, like, like look down their nose at them. Even though they were Jewish, they were surrounded by Gentiles in every direction. Uh, to, the, to the west, you had the Phoenicians and Tyre and Sidon. To the north, you had uh, Syria and Aram. To the east, you had the Decapolis, the series of 10 Greek cities. And to the southeast, you had Bashan. And then to the south, you had Samaria. And so you're circled by Galilee, uh, by uh, Gentiles. And there was a lot of interaction with them. 
Uh, the city of Capernaum itself was a, a very frequented trade city. Um, it was right off the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and so there was a lot of traffic and a lot of interaction. That's why the Bible is written in Greek. It's not written in Aramaic or in Hebrew, because Greek was the normal spoken language of the Gentiles and the, pe- the powers that be in the world at that time. And so it was a very kind of cross-cultural uh, region, and these kind of lines between Jew and Gentile were a little more blurred, not like they were down in the southern kingdom. And so that's why it's called, in a very kind of like a derisive way, oh, Galilee of the Gentiles. Like, look at them up there, like, you know, linking arms with all the ne'er-do-wells. Like, that's kind of why it's listed that way or written that way. But as far as I know, um, all the, the apostles were Jewish. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it just struck me, I, I don't think it's any small thing either that there's an inclusion of uh, both of what Simon, Peter, and James and John were doing as craft, uh, I sort of see it almost as a grace uh, perfected nature type relationship. Mm-hmm. You see, you know, the perfection of craft and the, the catching of uh, the fish for Simon and Peter, James and John, it says that they're preparing the nets when mm-hmm. Christ comes unto them. And even the language that Christ uses to them, right? Christ tells Simon, uh, uh, Simon and Andrew that um, he will make them fisher of men. I will bring you to the fullness of your craft and then some. I will yeah. bring you beyond where you are currently and naturally. And it says that for James and John that you know he sort of caught them. He sort of reeled them in. He sort of netted them in mm-hmm. um, using their particular station, recognizing uh their diligence, I guess they're assumed a virtue, recognizing that and saying, I will make you the masters of your craft and then some. And I think to sort of relate it to, you know, how we use uh, uh, the sacrament of the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. I think I think it's important that Western custom keeps uh, the unleavened bread for use in the house because it's sort of like, sort of like to this effect, right? Like these are... These are lowly stations. These aren't scholars. These aren't diplomats. Yeah. Um, these aren't rabbis. Um, yet Christ always, especially in, in the narrative of the gospel, he he likes to use you know the lowliest of the lowly, so to speak, and make the holiest of the holies from them. Mm-hmm. And you know that, that's what's also powerful about you know the transformation of unleavened bread into the body of Christ. Yeah, very humble ingredients with people and with the species that are used. I totally agree. I think, you know, this phrase that's used in theology and philosophy, grace built upon nature, as Noah had said, um, you know, just to, to summarize it in a very uh, particular way in this instance is that, you know, God doesn't use anything outside of the gifts he's given us to sanctify us and to make us holy or to help us to achieve his mission. He'll give us everything that we need, but it builds upon the person he created us to be. So I think what the devil very much wants us to think or say is, oh man, I wish I were more like fill in the blank, that person. You know, that's, I think it's very, and look at the world we live in. So ego comparative with social media, like looking at everyone else's life instead of our own, like the devil has you know, a lot of, of uh, achievement in this area because we're very good at kind of uh, having this envy or this desire to be like so-and-so when if we really wanted to lean into the fullness that God has prepared for us, we'd really be looking inward at how God has created us and how he has given us a certain nature, certain gifts that can, with his help, change the world, change the world. Blessed Carlo Acutis, who's on the path to sainthood, 
is attributed uh, this phrase where he said, everyone is born an original, but most people die a photocopy. Everyone just lives their life trying to be more and more and more like everybody else. They lose that sense of originality. I love this phrase, and I think this, one of, this verse, 19, come after me and I will make you fishers of men, encapsulates so much just in that one verse. I already talked about the meaning of come after me. But I will make you fishers of men. Jesus doesn't change their gifts. He doesn't say, I will make you great preachers. I will make you the holiest rabbis or disciples that there are. I will make you fishers of men. I will take your gifts and who you are and your mistakes and your mess and your past, and I recognize not them. You will make yourselves. No, I will make you. I will do it in you if you let me, if you come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. I will take your gift and I will anoint it. I will baptize it. I will transform it into something world-altering so that you can contribute to the body of Christ, to the kingdom of God in a unique and unrepeatable way that nobody else can. And that is something that fulfills, I think, this deep human longing that we have for a sense of identity, a sense of being, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, that if we lean into like who God created me uniquely to be, that is when we're really achieving what God is calling us to do to build a kingdom. When we're looking around and saying, okay, how can I be more like everyone else? How can I have a job like that or success like that or as many followers or friends or accolades or a relationship like that or a vocation like that or a life or a home like that, whatever it is, then the devil's checking more marks off of his to-do list. Okay, I've got them looking at each other now instead of looking at the great gift that God has sowed in them. I will make you fishers of men. Fishers of men. So it's a beautiful verse to reflect on. Just that, that language of come after me. I choose you. I see your past. I see everything that you are, everything that you've done. I still choose you. I will make you. I will do it in you. You just need to surrender. And I will take your gifts to go and evangelize and change the world and do something that no one else can do. That verse is profound area for our own deep reflection this week and in coming weeks to just sit with that. It's very, very, very beautiful. Other questions, thoughts? Yes, Roberto. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is ahead. Yes, sir. Is it to be interpreted in the sense of time? The kingdom of heaven is at hand in the sense that uh, our life is so short. So you have the chance of re reaching mm. to, or because in a supernatural way, 600 million years means one second. Gotcha. Okay. Is, it, is there some sort of an analogy with that here? or? Uh, yes. So this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, doesn't just mean the kingdom that will be, be made and available to us in heaven one day when we die or at the end of time. The actual, a good translation for the word kingdom is the reign of heaven, like the reign of a monarch. And so the reign of heaven or the reign of God is at hand, meaning like the king that you've been waiting for, the king in this kingdom that you wish would be reinitiated of this Hebrew nation coming back together, reunifying under a Messiah, it is now at hand. So as Catholics, we see the kingdom of God as both here and not yet. I'll say that again. It's both here and not yet. Meaning the reign of God is now. Like God is king of kings, Lord of the universe. He has saved all of us. And yet we will not be able to experience the fullness of that kingdom until the end of time. Okay, so it's both here and not yet. So the part he's saying is near, is at hand, is the, the one that is here now. And Jesus making himself known 
as Messiah, entering his public ministry, choosing disciples. There's a reason why he chooses 12, very symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel that were lost, 10 of which were lost, to kind of reestablish these covenant promises of God that were broken, that people came in and destroyed, and that were lost in the Old Testament rebuilding something new, using this kingdom language and imagery and saying, all that you've been waiting for is now at hand. You're welcome. Other questions, thoughts? Yes? Does the word repent here mean more than just being sorry for sinning? Yes. Yeah, because being sorry for sinning is contrition. To repent, the word here is metanoiete in Greek, uh, metanoia, if you've heard that word before, and it means a radical turn or conversion. Uh, meta uh, means beyond or through, and noia comes from uh, like gnosis, I believe, so beyond knowledge or beyond thought. So going beyond just thinking about God, going beyond this you know, uh, artificial knowledge-based relationship with him, going beyond that and saying, okay, now I'm going to commit my life. I'm going to actually act upon it. So repentance is not just, Lord, I'm sorry. Um, so how I imagine this is like, I imagine like um, I'm in a tunnel and if I'm sinning, I'm walking toward the dark end of the tunnel. And if I want to repent, I don't just stop and say, man, I should really stop walking in this direction. I'm really sorry, Lord. But to repent means to stop and then turn all the way around and start walking the other direction. Most of the time when we repent, when we say our sorry, when we go to confession, what we really do, if we're honest, is we just stop. We just say, okay, I don't really want to be going in this direction anymore. Or at best, we stop and we kind of turn to the side. And the good's over here, the bad's over here, and we're like, all right, I got to figure out which way I'm going. And it's a whole lot easier to just be like, mm, but this way's more comfortable, and I kind of know it, and I'm just going to keep going. You know, we just keep going in the dark direction. A re real repentance is a 180-degree turn in the, in the opposite direction. And the interesting thing is what the church teaches about the sacrament of confession is the first step of confession happens before you get here, and that step is repentance. You actually have to repent of your sins to be truly sorry for them and resolve to never do them again. And then you go and make the act of confession itself, professing that you're sorry for those sins, saying what they were, promising to never do them again. So if you go into a confession with full knowledge that, oh yeah, I'm going to do that next weekend, it's not a valid confession. It's completely invalid. If you have full knowledge that you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to keep doing that. I'm just going to confession to kind of get that sin off my soul. So if I die before I make the next one, I won't go to hell. No, invalid. All of those invalid. You have to actually repent. It's not just about being sorry. It's about showing it by turning away from that sin and walking toward the light. So that there is a difference. Other questions? Thoughts? Yes, Chrissy. I was going to say, it's funny that you mentioned the children because we literally just watched that episode last night. Yes. And they showed the miracle of the abundance of the fish before Christ said, come and follow me. Mm -hmm. So it kind of depicted like more context and like relationship building yeah. prior to like get out and come follow me. Yes. And so I was flipping through and I was trying to see if that miracle came before in any of the other gospels or if it was like the creator's artistic depiction mm. for the masses. If yeah. that makes sense. Do you have any... I think it does in one of the Gospels. If I'm not mistaken, it might be in Luke, where that happens first. There's a miraculous catch of fish. Um, but I think it does, or it may have been an artistic license, but for some reason I'm remembering it as being first. Um, temptation. Beginning of Galilean ministry. Rejection. Cure, cure, cure. Jesus leaves. 
call this out. No, it's not in Luke, maybe in Mark. But I do think somewhere there is that miraculous catch of fish first, or it happens simultaneously. But I could be wrong, because I'm not seeing it now that I said that. I'm putting my foot in my mouth. <laughs> No, yeah, apparently not. Yeah. So it happens after. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Yes. Chris. Oh, um, one word that stood out to me was um, where it says, turn to every disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't say most or some. Mm. And so that kind of stuff in my plus, it just has that power to um, destroy death. Yeah. And uh, um, when it says curing, is he, is Jesus restoring what God wanted? So in the sense of curing every disease, it would be um, just removing the effect of the disease from that person, healing them physically. But it wouldn't be restoring them to a pre-fall state. Obviously, the effect of sin would still be on them. So it wouldn't be healing them to the point where they're now like Adam and Eve and perfected and they're not able to sin anymore. No, it would just be healing the body so that your life is sustained longer so that you can perfect the soul. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Is there a deeper meaning to the word withdrew? Because God is only, why do you think withdraw? Is someone's after him or? Um, you know, so he withdraws because John the Baptist has been arrested. In fact, the, the, word in, the words in Greek, been arrested, are been delivered up. It's the same words that end up being used for Jesus later when he's delivered up to Pilate and to the Sanhedrin, to the Jews. Um, and so I, I can't remember the word for withdrew in Greek. I don't think it's um, significant. But he, uh, what's interesting is that he withdraws to a region where Herod is still in charge. Herod is still in charge of Galilee. So he doesn't go to a region where like he's escaping Herod. It seems as though his withdrawal is actually a purposeful journey to a place to start his ministry. Because now that John's been arrested, it's kind of like, all right, we're at this kind of climactic moment where John kind of ruffled the feathers. And if you want to get things going, don't wait too long because powers that be are already getting wind of this kind of change and this message of John the Baptist pointing the way to Jesus. And so, um, yeah, I think it is more of a purposeful action than him running away or going to a place where he's out of Herod's grasp. Because if I'm not mistaken, Galilee is still in his jurisdiction. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Nobody wants to know about Zebulun and Naphtali? (laughs) Who the heck are those guys? Right? They are. They're two of the sons of Jacob. What's interesting about this prophecy, this, so we have this beginning of Galilean ministry that occurs in, in almost all of the Gospels, but this is the only Gospel that mentions this prophecy from Isaiah, and only one that mentions these two tribes. And that's because um, in Isaiah chapter 8, where this comes from, in verse 23, the title here is, The Promise of Salvation Under a New Davidic King. That's pretty specific. Promise of salvation under a new Davidic king. And it says, There is no gloom where there had been distress, where once he degraded the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now he has glorified the way of the sea, the land across the the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, you could say, of all peoples. 
And then in, verse, in chapter 9, it continues, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who lived in the land of gloom, a light has shone. And they're showing here in this moment, Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy in this moment. He is the new Davidic king that was promised. Now, why is that significant where he is? So Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two sons of Jacob. Jacob was an Old Testament patriarch, and he, had, he was renamed Israel, and he had 12 sons. And Joseph ended up having two sons, and then Levi became the tribe of the priests. And so those other 12, the 11 other sons, and then two half-tribes half of the sons of, of Joseph, um, became the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? And so uh, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, um, oh, I started, um, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, all of these, these 12 tribes of Israel, they represented the family of God, and when they came into the promised land, each of them divided the promised land into sections based on tribe. And so anytime you're seeing in the Bible anything that has to do with land, it has to do with this attachment to people's promises of God, because God promised them you would have land. That's why they divide it this way, and they would only marry within their tribe. And it's kind of weird, you know, but like Isaac and Rebecca were cousins, Jacob and Rachel were cousins. It's just... Yeah, it just happens. So, yeah, it's weird when you read back. You're like, oh, wait, that was your uncle? Okay, your cousins. Weird. Okay. Um, yeah, just over and over and over again, cousins marrying cousins. But anyways, this is much more common then, thankfully, um, than it is now. So, anyways, Zebulun and Naphtali were these two regions in the north, in the region we would now call Galilee in Jesus' time. And when, um, when the 10 of the 12 tribes kind of moved north during this time of civil war before Jesus... The first two tribes, the first area that were invaded and destroyed by the Assyrians in around like the 730s, 720s BC were Zebulun and Naphtali, the area where Capernaum is. They were completely destroyed. The first regions, the first tribes to be lost, completely destroyed. And it was like five or 10 years before the whole rest of the Northern Kingdom was destroyed. And so at that point, kind of ground zero for the history of the destruction of this like great kingdom of Hebrew people and these 12 tribes coming together, Jesus goes to ground zero. And his, these prophetic tribes are invoked from this prophecy from Isaiah, showing that he is now going to be that light in the darkness to reunify, to rebuild, to be that king in the line of David and greater than David, to build what David never got to see come to fruition. This glorious kingdom that not only includes Jewish people, but all people. And that's why he goes to an area surrounded by Gentiles, so that he has the ability to start those interactions with them, to start what eventually will be a ministry and a religion to the entire world, not just to the Jewish people. So it's very significant that these two particular tribes are mentioned. These two particular tribes also in the Old Testament, they're two of the tribes who failed to drive out all of the Canaanites and the pagan religions from their region when they move in. And because of that, there are consequences. And that's why in a lot of these northern tribes, paganism and idolatry was much more um, prolific. Uh, intermarrying with the local people was a big cause of that. And that resulted in a lot of corruption of the faith. And when prophets came to say, hey, stop doing this, they didn't listen. And the Jewish people saw that as the reason why they were wiped out first and why they eventually were all lost, because they turned away from God. They didn't obey these provisions all the way back in the book of Numbers and the book of Judges. And because of that, they became ground zero for the destruction of all that God had promised. Little did they know Jesus was going to come so many years later, centuries later, to fulfill that promise in a different way. And where was he going to do it where it all went wrong 800 years before that? It's amazing. Like the, When you think about 
Like how many things had to align, you know? Or like your own life. You've ever heard like the statistical likelihood that you exist? That like the chances of like, how many people had to be involved? Like how many marriages? How many people had to decide to marry each other or have children to make all of your ancestors to then choose the rest of your ancestors to make you? It's like a one in 10 to the like billions um, chance that like you individually exist, that all those people decided once upon a time, yes, we will get together and their unique genes formed your ancestors and they formed you know, everything that you are. It's this amazing cataclysmic genetic miracle or accident, how you look at it, that is completely unlikely in all areas of statistics, completely unfathomable, like a walking miracle, each one of us. And God has interwoven all of those things in such a way that he knows that he's playing the long game. And he knows however anyone makes a choice, he can get there. He can make a string from what, what is happening now to what he desires to happen. At 800 years before, he knew that Jesus would be here, that he'd be here in the flesh, in this place, beginning his ministry, calling his first disciples, rebuilding a group of 12 where the first group of 12 started to fall apart. Incredible. And yet we doubt that God is in, in control. Like, God, are you sure you have this figured out? Are you sure I can trust you? It's like, have you read any of this? <laughs> I've got it. I've got you. Other thoughts, questions, things stand out. Yes, Lynn. Well, the mention of the great light, mm -hmm. obviously it's, it also indicates like the great light that these shepherds and the wise men saw mm -hmm. when they went to go see Jesus. Yep. So I think it also, this prophecy talks also, I think, about the birth of Jesus, too. Mm, yeah, well, the birth of all creation. What are God's first words? Let there be light. Yeah, that's right. Let there be light. Literally bringing light out of darkness. All there was was darkness, and the Spirit of God hovered over the abyss of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, fiat lux. Let there be light. The first act of creation. And here, again, in the New Testament, the first act of creation in Jesus' ministry is exactly the same. Let there be light in this place of darkness. That's why it says in John 1, in the great prologue, it's kind of a recapitulation of the first book of, of, of the Bible, of Genesis, where it says in verse, five, or in verse 4 and 5, what came to be through him was life, and this life was the light of the human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's Jesus. That's why he says in John, I think in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. I am the light. And then commissions us. You are the light. You are the light up on the hill and do not put your light under a bushel basket, but let it shine for all to see. That when we follow Jesus, when we live as he did, we follow his promptings and we let his light envelop us, we then too can be the light. There's this great analogy between uh, us and Jesus, like the sun and the moon. So the sun radiates all of this light. That's like Jesus. The moon has no light. It's a rock. We see it because it reflects the light of the sun. It's the only reason we see it. The total darkness if, if, uh, if the sun was in a different position or the moon wasn't catching its light. We're called to be the same. On our own, total darkness, completely useless. And yet when we position ourselves in proximity to the sun, we can then reflect his light. And that is how he is seen. And yes, more of us is seen, more of us is seen and shown to the world a greater sense of who we are. Again, grace builds upon nature. But it's ultimately to point to, hey, where is that light coming from? Why does the moon look like that tonight, but it didn't look like that two weeks ago? 
And generations and generations of people studied these things in the sky to determine, ah, it's all coming from that great light from the sun. The same can be true for us. It's a great analogy for evangelizing, for living out our faith. Are we adequately reflecting the light of the sun? And in order to do that, we have to be in proximity to him. We have to be close to him. And if we do the thing where, oh no, I've got this, Lord. I'll stand between you and this person. What happens? An eclipse. You can't see anything. Total darkness. When we do that, when we try and assert ourselves and say, no, this is all about me, and we do the one thing that we shouldn't do if we really want to shine the light is we block it and obscure it completely. It's a great thing to think about every time you look up to be reminded of your role. Any other thoughts? Yes. I was just curious, are we to understand that as soon as Jesus said, come follow the disciples, they're working like 24 hours a day, like, setting camp at night. I yep. was thinking about the fact that Simon Peter had a wife. He did. He just, like, peace out, like, I'll see you yeah. ever again, or... Yeah, that's crazy, huh? I, and they, they depict it really well in The Chosen, because we don't think about this, that Peter was married. But it's clear, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. And you don't have a mother-in-law unless you're married. You know, So it never directly mentions his wife, or how they're married, or who she is. So that may mean that by the time this gospel was written, she had died, or something like that had happened. Um, in fact, why am I remembering that I think someone... There's some group of people in the world who, are, who have been or maybe continue to trace the lineage of Peter because maybe he had a son or something like that. And there's this group, why am I remembering them? I read some very random Wikipedia page at like one in the morning or something, and this is like suddenly <laughs> popping into my head. So this could be totally wrong. But I feel like someone maybe on YouTube or someone here can correct me because I get really helpful comments sometimes when I can't remember something or I say something wrong. Um, but I feel like there's a group of people who have like been tracing generations, the lineage of Peter. But anyways, yeah, we don't know. We don't know anything about her. As far as I know, there's no history associated with her. Even all of the extra biblical information we have about Peter is just about where Peter went on his missionary journeys or other miracles that are attributed to him uh, and things like that. So yeah, I think that it, it contributes to this idea that I was talking about before that it's like, We've been waiting for the Messiah for, like, hundreds of years. So if he comes, go. Like, just go. For such a time as this, like, go. And yes, there was, there was pain and there was longing. In fact, there are some instances in the Old Testament where it's like, you know, a husband and wife meet. And, uh, oh, can she just stay but a week? I think this happens with Isaac and Rebecca. Uh, when Isaac meets Rebecca, uh, her father asks, uh, can we just have her here for a week? And it's the servant of Isaac who's come to, to find a wife. And he says, well, let's ask her. And she says, no, I will go with you right now. But there, you see, there is this kind of tension, this longing for like, yes, even though there was this tendency to like, all right, the time is now, let's act. There was still this human attachment and human pain. So I imagine that very much happened. But uh, G Capernaum is Jesus' home base for all the three years of his ministry. So he frequents back there a lot. So it's not like Peter was just gone for three years or permanently. Uh, he was around. Uh, and it wouldn't have been probably that different from the life he led as a fisherman on top of all of the... Uh, roles that a man had in the society to go to synagogue, to sacrifice in the temple, to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem, probably gone pretty frequently anyway, but this would have been a little more significant than that. And yes, it was very customary for, especially if you were not in a home base or a town where any one of you was from, you were eating, living, sleeping, following with the rabbi everywhere 24-7. Uh, that was the role. Unless the rabbi wanted to go somewhere on his own, which Jesus often withdrew uh, on his own to pray, or sent the apostles off on their own, either two by two or as a group, and said, hey, I'll meet up with you later, uh, paraphrasing. But, you know, 
that otherwise they were together all the time, instantly. So yeah, maybe he got to pack a bag. His wife packed him a snack with a little note in it. Brown bagged it. Like, I'll miss you. Have a great three years. <laughs> I'll be having girls night 24-7. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, we think it might be hard. Some wives would have been like, yeah, please, go. This fisherman thing's not working out. You always smell. You're always out late. Just get out of here. <laughs> you know? Finally, some peace and quiet. Anyway, other thoughts, questions? Anything stand out to anyone else? No? Beautiful. I think as we reflect on this passage in the, in the coming week, as we prepare to hear it this coming Sunday, I really want to call your attention back to that verse 19. And just pray with that. Imagine yourself in that scene, see, hearing those things and all the things that are unsaid in that. You know, come after me. I will make you fishers of men. Come follow me. You are good enough. I see something in you that maybe you don't even see in yourself. I'm with you. I will make it happen in you. You don't have to have it figured out. You don't have to have all the answers. I will do it in you if you but follow me. Drop your nets. Let go. I was listening to something today about um, someone talking about being on fire, you know, being on fire for the Lord, wanting to be totally on fire for the Lord. And she said this thing in passing. She said, you know, in order to have fire, you need something to burn. I never really thought about that before, but in order to have fire, you need to have something to burn. And so if we really want God to set us on fire, if we really want to be on fire for the Lord, we need to lay down our logs of attachment, the things like, all right, God, you can burn this. I don't need this anymore. Sometimes we just think like, okay, God, just come and set me on fire exactly as I am. Just right here as I am in my mess, not changing a thing, just set me on fire. And that's, it's never going to take root. It's never going to have the supernatural and charismatic effect in our life because we're still the same attached you know, a difficult and stubborn person. Until we make that, that journey to detachment, to surrender, to full, fully trusting in God, that this God who from the very moment of creation and before, before he even spoke the words, let there be light, knew that he would be here redeeming us in some fashion, had that sense of just the grand scheme of all of creation. A God who's playing that long game, who loves us that much to care that meticulously about each one of our lives and all of creation, he is a God that we can trust, that we can surrender to. And he will do it in us. I will make you what I created you to be. If you but let go, lay down those logs in the fire so I can set them ablaze. Build the structure. If you've ever been in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, you know, you have to build the, the fire. And so when I heard that, and like I was listening to a podcast when that woman said that, and I just imagined myself like with a lighter just trying to like start a fire like in midair. Just like, nope, not working. I feel like I do that a lot when I pray to the Holy Spirit. I'd never realized, like, I really have to think about, like, all right, what do I need to let go of and detach from so that the Holy Spirit can set that ablaze? That I can say no to this so that the Holy Spirit has a room and I can say yes to God in that way. And so I think all of that can be encapsulated in some way in this one verse to really sit with. And yes, there's so much here in all these other, other places, but I think for me at least, and maybe the Holy Spirit can move you in that sense too, to just sit with that, that verse. Maybe read it each day or a few times each day. Commit it to memory. Matthew 4.19, come after me. I will make you fishers of men. And think about what that means for you in your own life. What are the gifts God has given you? How is he seeking to transform them? How has he transformed them? How can he continue to transform them to bring about his kingdom? In what unique and unrepeatable way do you play a role in God's mission and plan for this, this world and the salvation of other people's souls?
Incredible things are at work in the world and can be at work in our lives if we but let go and follow. Because God looks at you and me and says, you're enough. You're enough. I said it before and I'll say it again. You don't need to change in order for God to love you. But when you realize how much God loves you, it will change you. Are we willing this week to let it change us a little bit more so that we can go out and change the world a little bit more for his glory? Let's pray. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. We praise you and thank you, God, for this time. This rich imagery and study of your word, Lord, we thank you for your wisdom and your Holy Spirit guiding us and teaching us, speaking in and through us to help us to know you better and all that you are speaking and promising to us, all that you see in us, that you are choosing each one of us to play a unique and unrepeatable role in your mission. And you give us the freedom to say yes or no, but if we say no, there's no one else who can step in to fill that role. So help us to see the great gift and the great responsibility you have given us and to allow ourselves to let go of the things that get in the way of our relationship with you so that we can come follow you and so that you can make us whatever you desire, using our own gifts and talents, building upon that nature you've given us and allowing grace to unfold. Bless us each in the ways we most need it, especially as we reflect on this word and as we anticipate gathering together for the Eucharist and our celebration of the sacrifice of the Mass this coming weekend. As we hear this word proclaimed again, let it speak anew to us and challenge us to follow you even more faithfully. Let us continue to be good hearers of the word and better doers and continue to help us say yes to the ways you are calling us to bless people in the world this week. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.